Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. We'll be reading verses 31 to 35, and then verses 44 to 52. Hear now the word of God. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into bad containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you all understood? Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you have abundant blessings for us through your word. We ask you to send your spirit so that we don't simply think about these things, but so that we treasure you, and so that we treasure your word, and so that we treasure your kingdom. We are dependent upon you for all of these things, and so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you think it's strange for us to look at this many parables all at once, but uh, I want you to notice what Jesus says at the very end of our passage in verse 51, after he tells them this slew of short parables. He says, have you understood all these things? Uh, You also notice this phraseology. He says again, 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 each time he tells the parables. uh, What he's showing is that there is connective tissue between each of the parables. There is an idea that is tying all of them together. And so if you get these things, when he says, do you understand these things? If you understand what these things are, then you understand the something that Jesus is aiming at. All of these parables are meant to be heard and taken in collectively. 
And so what I want us to do this morning is, I want us to just briefly seek to understand the parables and see what Jesus wants us to know about his kingdom because we've heard them. And so perhaps also in the process, we will see why it is so important for the disciples to understand the kingdom in the first place. Why belabor these things at all? Why spend so much time talking about the kingdom of God? You know, Jesus spends so much time on this because he loves his people and he loves his disciples. And he wants us to know not only what we are in for as Christians. He wants us to know about the trials that are ahead. But he also wants us to see the glorious good and the glorious beauty that he has for us in the church. And so that's what Jesus is setting before us today. Uh, On the one hand, you know, you have this statement about Satan's continued actions against the church of God happening happening here. But on the other hand, this beautiful statement where Jesus acknowledges the beauty of the kingdom that he's building and he tells the people, it is all worth it. It's worth the cost. It's worth the struggle. It's worth the difficulty. And so we have these two simple points going on here. We have first, we have the assaulted kingdom and then we have the precious kingdom. The Christian life is not easy. It is not a cakewalk. It's not meant to be a cakewalk. And it does not continue along uninterrupted without any challenges. Instead, what Jesus is showing us with these parables is that the kingdom has growing pains and the kingdom has difficulty. And yet in the midst of it, Jesus never even hints that there is the slightest reason to flee. There is not the slightest reason to be fearful or concerned because even the troubles that the church experiences are planned for. They are part of Jesus's map for the church. Uh, And so let's look, beginning in verse 31. Um, This morning, the first point I want to acknowledge is the assaulted kingdom. Um, I'm going to read verses 31 to 33 again, and then I want to make some comments, because if you understand these verses the way that many Christians do, and probably, uh, you're probably feeling very puzzled when I talk about the mustard seed uh, as being, or the leaven, as being some kind of negative thing about the kingdom of God being assaulted. If, if that's what you usually, if that's not what you usually think about when you hear these verses, then I want you to pay even closer attention I'm going to read this one more time, and I'm going to make the case that what Jesus is telling here is not necessarily a positive parable. So listen to this again. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches." told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Um, There are basically two understandings of this passage, and you should know that they are quite different from each other. Um, One understanding of this passage says that these two parables are saying that the kingdom of God grows from being something very small and insignificant into something that is great and, and incredible. So that is sort of a a view of these two parables that is very optimistic. It's a very optimistic view of the church. And if I was to preach on that passage today, I would basically basically go all in showing you 
the amazing growth of the church, I would probably take you to the book of Acts and probably show you in the book of Acts uh, at Pentecost just how explosive the growth of the church is. And the reason I'm able to tell you what I would have said is that's the sermon I was preparing to preach. Um, And then I started studying this passage more deeply, and then I, I made the mistake of reading James Montgomery Boyce talking about this passage. And I don't know if you've ever had somebody open your eyes on a passage and you couldn't unsee what he made you see. And James Montgomery Boyce ruined this passage for me. And so now, I, now I'm going to show you what Boyce showed me. Um, and if I do that with great trepidation, I don't want to disagree with uh, those who came before me. You know, Calvin, the church fathers, they looked at this passage and they said, this is a positive passage about the explosive growth of the church. Um, and actually, on the one hand, it is about the explosive growth of the church. But let me show you at least what Boyce was talking about. So Boyce, in his book, The Parables of Jesus, uh, talks about this parable, and he says this is not a parable about how great the kingdom of God grows, necessarily. It's not necessarily a passage about, about growing from small to great, even though it does grow from, from small to great. The passage is specifically about something abnormal in the growth of the church, where there is something off about it. He says, he says, in other words, that this is about sort of a abnormal bureaucratic expansion of the church and the way that Satan uses those things to undermine the work of the church by sowing sin within it. Um, another commentator sort of summarizes it like this. He says, all these parables show the growth of evil and our prophecies extending over the entire age in which we live. In other words, if Boyce is right, then what these parables are doing is they're actually showing us that the church grows, but that even as the church grows, there is sin in our midst, if you wanted to put it really simply. Um, I want to mention one reason to take this reading very seriously, and it's, it's really simple. Two weeks ago, uh, I preached on the parable of the weeds. And if you remember that parable, that parable was about how the church is a place that has two kinds of people living in, their, in, the, in the midst, right? We have those who are true believers, and then we have hypocrites. And, and we're all part of the same church, right? We're all here, we meet together, we look the same. And yet part of the point of the parable of the weeds was to show that some of us are uh, elect and some are not, right? Some people are born again and some are not. And, and Jesus is saying that's by design. That's by design that the sorting doesn't happen this side of eternity. It happens in the age to come. That's when it takes place. And so one of the ways that Satan seeks to undermine the church is by having believers and unbelievers alongside of each other. The hope on Satan's part is that the credibility of the church is hurt by sin being in our midst. Um, his hope is to discourage believers. Believers can often become discouraged and upset by the, the hypocrisy that we see around us and even by the hypocrisy that we see within us. Well, that's what we saw last week or the week before. Now, here's what I'm getting at. Remember, this passage happens sandwiched between the parable of the weeds in verse 30 and the interpretation of the parable of the weeds in verse 36. We didn't read that because we read those together, right? But I don't want you to forget that this parable is sandwiched between those things. So here's what I'm trying to point out. It would be a little bit strange. Jesus is allowed to do whatever he wants. 
I don't know if I need to say that. Jesus is allowed to do whatever he wants. <laughs> but it would be strange for this to be a passage about something completely different. And then for him to return to the interpretation of the parable of the seeds. Let me suggest this. Instead, the idea that these parables are, is, is that these parables, the parable of the weed, and these two parables here, uh, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the, of the leaven, are both, they are all, about the work of Satan attempting to undermine the kingdom of Jesus. That, if that's what this, these two parables are about, it fits perfectly with the parable of the weeds. So the, the idea here is that Satan actually is at work. He is very focused on the church. He is very interested in the church. And, and what is his work in the church? Sowing and mixing sin and evil into the work of the church. And so what I want you to suggest, what I now see and can't unsee, is that these parables are a commentary on that. They are a commentary on Satan's work attempting to undermine the church. So besides the fact that this interpretation perfectly squares with the context, it perfectly squares with the parable of the weeds, um, Boyce mentions some other reasons for this reading. Let me just mention a few. First, he points this out. Mustard seeds don't grow into trees. They grow into shrubs. Uh, In this parable, the mustard seed grows into something that is not normal for mustard seeds. He picks a plant that doesn't grow into a tree. Um, If he had wanted to make a point about the victorious, powerful, explosive growth of the church, uh, then he could have compared the church to an acorn that develops into a mighty oak or or a seed that grows into a, a mighty cedar. And yet instead, because he could have picked the most powerful trees that he knew of, and the cedars of Lebanon would have been a a perfect illustration of that. And yet he doesn't pick a great mighty cedar. Instead, he mentions this almost mutant tree that develops unnaturally from a mustard seed. Now, the mustard seed grows into something that is abnormal for a mustard seed. It is larger than it should be, which fits right with the parable of the weeds, Right? Because the field looks like it has more good plants than it actually has in the parable of the weeds. In the parable of the weeds, you look out at the field and you think, what an incredible harvest. And then you become disheartened when you realize how much rye there is out there. That it's not all wheat. And the mustard plant looks bigger than a mustard plant actually is. And so again, you notice that unnatural growth. That something, something alien is here. Something foreign is here. Um... Notice just how unnatural the mustard plant is in the parable. Um, Second, Boyce argues that in the parable so far, the birds of the air have not been good guys. If I could put it in terms of good guys and bad guys, right? So far in the parables, the birds have been the bad guys. What have the birds done? The birds are the ones, they're the villains, they're the ones that come along and pluck the seed off of the path. They're the ones who are ministers for Satan, coming and snatching away God's word. Um, They're stealing away the seed. Um, If they are not Satan's tormentors, then who are they? If they're not Satan's tormentors, the context of the parable gives us nothing to go on. You would just have to guess why Jesus includes this part about the, the birds nesting among the leaves and the branches of the trees. You have to assume, I've heard 
different commentators say, well, this is all the nations of the earth. All the nations of the earth are the birds. Uh, And so the church becomes like this tree that all the world comes to. But you'll notice that you have to read that in. You have to read that in. Um, If you go from the previous parables, you see that the birds have been the villains. I think it's most natural to continue to understand them as the villains because their role is not explained in any other way. Jesus intends for you to stick with the way that he's been talking about birds. Jesus doesn't like birds, apparently. My wife will love this this reading. Um, Sorry, without context, that means nothing to you. I'm just picking on my wife. Um, (laughs) Third, I want to mention a third reason. Jesus mentions in verse 33, the passage mentions that the kingdom is like a jar of flour with 11 mixed into it. So think of this. In nearly all of the Old Testament, and in Jesus' parables, and in the epistles of the New Testament, leaven is uniformly mentioned when it is symbolically referred to as evil. Now, leaven is not actually bad, leaven is not actually evil, but it is a symbol of contamination. It is a symbol of something that contaminates and spreads. Um, You know, just like the last point, it would be very strange for suddenly the birds to become the heroes and the leaven to become some heroic tool. Suddenly for these two things that have been spoken of in negative ways to suddenly become great things, right? It's very odd for Jesus to now, to warn us about the leaven of the Pharisees and then to have this parable where he tells us how wonderful leaven is. Um, for Jesus to start, start using yeast as this symbol for greatness and health. Um, instead, rather than pausing while talking about the troubles of the church in the parable of the weeds, to make a point about how great the church is going to grow and how great it's going to spread, I hope we can actually see what Jesus is really doing here. He is doubling down on the lesson of the parable of the weeds. And what this means is that Jesus is warning us. There will not only be unbelievers growing up among believers, but the church will appear to be growing unnaturally large. And it will have a great deal of good and bad mixed in together. That's what the parable is saying. This is Jesus warning us against a church that is infused through and through with unbelief. It's, it's what Boyce calls the secular church. Um, You know, he's using language in the 70s and 80s, but I think it's still a pretty relevant way of speaking. You know, what he means when he talks about a secular church uh, is that those who think of the church, not with the eyes of God uh, and with the heart of God, but with the heart and mind of the world. People who think about the church in terms of, hey, you know, treating it like a worldly institution. Um, The reality is that even as the Christian community has grown in history, Even as the church has become very large and influential, it also has at times confused its size, confused its structure, and confused its status with spiritual fruit, right? We we see influence. We see that evangelicals in the United States have a huge say in who the president is and begin to throw our weight around. And we see that and think we must be in our golden age. We have status, we have size, we have structure, we have influence. It's very easy for us to think that way, to think that's what spiritual health must be. That's what uh, liveliness for the church must be. We assume that because a church is growing, 
not even at a national level, but even a local level. We think if a church is growing, um, if it's got a lot going on, uh, or if a church has signs of what we might think of as success, well, then it must be healthy. It must be spiritual. It must be good. It is so easy to think like the world and to mix the world's thinking into our own practices, into our own beliefs, into our own markers of what is or is not healthy. There is incredible pressure on us today to set aside simple, plain, clear teachings of Scripture on a variety of issues and to think like a secular church. The pressure is on, right? The, the, like all of society is saying, church, why don't you get with it? Why don't you modernize like us? Why don't you start thinking like we think? It's so easy. You just have to say a few words. You just have to give in on a few issues. You just have to stop caring about what a human being is, right? And we see numbers of people claiming to be Christians who feel like they have figured out how they can, they can wed Christian teachings about salvation and grace, with a view of humanity that separates human beings from their created roles and purposes. They say, we can do it. We can do it. We can figure it out. And that's just one example of what Boyce talks about when he talks about the secular church. And another way that leaven gets mixed into the church is, is in the lives of Christians, right? We sometimes think the big threat to the church is, comes from the outside, but isn't, aren't these parables really about how trouble arises within the church? That Satan's plan is actually to plant seeds within the church that sow its own destruction. Um, It can happen in an ordinary way in the lives of Christians. You know, we saw that in our discussion of hypocrisy, right? We can be people who claim Christ, but live as practical atheists. Um, We can be people who are quite worldly and who want the world to like us, um, all the while saying, Christian things and claiming Christian faith. It's incredibly tempting to sort of have our cake and eat it too. What if we could be part of the church and part of the world? What if we could, we, what if we could do it all? And, and Paul says, though, in Galatians 5, 9, that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. What is he saying? Or at least what is he saying that's relevant for us here? It's that we often think we can give the world a little and it's almost like it'll be harmless to us. But instead, what Jesus is saying is that little bit grabs onto us, it latches on, and it spreads. It spreads within our own hearts, and it spreads within our church. So in other words, we have to be alert to secularisms encroach into the church. And when I say secularism, I'm not talking about political stuff. I am talking about the world's way of thinking. I'm talking about the way of thinking that isn't isn't taught to us by the word, but instead by the world. We've got to be alert to the ways that the world influences our thinking, right? The most insidious part of all of this, and we learned about this in the parable of the weeds, is that we may not notice just how bad it gets, right? We'll look around and things will superficially look good, right? We may feel comfortable. We may feel happy. We may even like what we see, And yet, if we go just by externals, if we judge as the world judges, if we think like the world thinks, we will never see that in our midst there's this growing threat of compromise and worldliness that by God's grace we have to fight tooth and nail. And it starts here in our own hearts. So we should begin by thinking about how has has a godless way of thinking 
influenced my own heart, my own soul, the way I think, the way I think about life, the way I think about God. What are the, what are the stories the world is telling me that I, I'm buying it, hook, line, and sinker? You know, remember the, remember the villains in the story. I mentioned them already. They were the birds, right? The birds in the story of the mustard seed. In other words, what does that teach us? If those birds are God's enemies, it means the enemies of Christ are often the ones who live in our midst. Now, this is not me trying to create paranoia. Think about this. Think about this. In church history, it has often been those who claimed Christian faith that were so destructive to it. Um, It has often been the case that the greatest enemies of the church at one time lived in its shadow. Charles Darwin was once a part of the church. He attended college with the intention of entering seminary, right? He was, he saw himself as a part of this. In other words, he nested in the branches of the tree. Uh, Joseph Stalin was a seminary student with incredible grades. Um, Read the book Young Stalin sometime and you will be amazed. That guy could have passed, probably passed an ordination exam. Hitler was baptized and a confirmed member of the Roman Catholic Church. He attended services in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. So many times people who were seen to later be outright unbelievers, enemies of God, were also those who claimed at one time or another to belong to the church. You know, the world looks at that and they go, ah, see, that's proof. See, that's proof that the church is bad. And and Jesus would look at that and go, no, that's proof of exactly what I'm telling you in this parable. It's not like people discovered this in the 21st century. Um, This has been a part of the church's life. There were birds nesting in the boughs of Christ's tree. And that is not a cause for discouragement. I mean, remember, it's why Jesus tells these parables, specifically to protect you, Christian, from being discouraged. Um, The point is not to discourage us. It is to protect us from discouragement. So... So when we see sin or we see unbelief, even in our midst, we shouldn't fear and we shouldn't tremble. Instead, we should remember that God is at work. Even now, he is protecting his church. Jesus says this in Matthew 16, 18. We'll get to this uh, in a few weeks. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus is giving us an optimistic vision for the church and for the future of the church, but he is not giving us a conflict-free vision of the church. The gates of hell will try, though, which is why Jesus speaks here of the assaulted kingdom. Now, second this morning, though, I want us to see the precious kingdom. You know, I was tempted to just do this and, and not dwell so much on the first half of this, but I think these things hang together You know, of all the truths we need to hear today and be reminded of today, I would suggest that the beauty of Christ's bride, the church, needs to be reclaimed and appreciated. Um, The church is assaulted. The church is assaulted. Often from within, as we've seen, the birds of the air are in the branches of the Lord's tree. There is yeast mixed into God's dough. There are weeds sown into God's field. The church is beaten and battered and the waves of sin and the world have broken against God's people for centuries. And we're at this cultural moment where Christians may even be demoralized by the way we're seen and portrayed. I mean, I just want to 
I just, I want you to walk away from this place seeing the beauty of Jesus' church and not thinking of the ugliness of the church. You know, the world is, is so good at hammering us and beating upon us and, and I think demoralizing us as Christians, especially if you pay attention to pop culture. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't watch TV. Maybe you don't watch movies. You may be, you're probably a happier person than me if you don't do those things. Um, but it is not at all unusual in, in popular culture for Christians to be seen as villains and treated as villains. You know, sometimes making the villain a Christian of one stripe or another, sometimes they sort of pull it back and they, you can't tell what kind of religion they are, but you know it's based on a scary Baptist preacher, you know? Like, like that's just, that's, that's how they enhance the villain, right? They enhance the villain by making him religious. You make him more creepy, you make him more eerie. Um, you know, they walk around quoting scripture. Um, there was recently a, a TV series that came out, came out. It was a post-apocalyptic TV series. It featured, it featured a horrible, disgusting villain who was also, you guessed it, a pastor. And, and I had a friend who commented and he said, as soon as I saw that this character was a pastor, I knew he was going to be the villain. And sure enough, he was the villain and a really horrible villain. Um, movies do this sort of thing as well. Um, old films, there's a film called Night of the Hunter. I don't know if any of you watch old black and white movies, but Night of the Hunter does this, where the, the villain is a creepy, scary guy who's posing as a pastor, walks around quoting scripture and singing, leaning on the everlasting arms. Um, Shawshank Redemption, Contact, Carrie, Footloose, The Mist. The list goes on of movies where the villain is either a Christian or is at least enhanced in his villainy by being a Christian. Or it doesn't even have to be horror movies, right? You've got TV shows like Parks and Recreation and The Office, right? It is the religious characters on those shows who are the nastiest, the most unpleasant, right? Nobody wants to be an Angela. Nobody wants to be an Angela. Um, again, half of you probably know that, half of you probably don't. Um, in fact, when someone is fervently religious in a film, you can almost guarantee they're going to be a villain or at least they're going to have something really horrible happen to them. Um, sort of like the lawyer getting aided in Jurassic Park. It just happens. It has to be that way. Um, surely there are people who claim Christ. They don't live what they claim. Sure. Um, maybe it's realistic to do that. And yet Christians are greatly misrepresented and caricatured and misunderstood in the culture. And so, on some level, I think that Christians, over time, week after week, year after year, find it demoralizing to be spoken of and treated like that. And I, I know that that, that that can be discouraging on one level, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you're living to please God in your daily life. You're, you're stumbling and falling. You're getting back up. You're, you're repenting of your sin. You're failing again. You're repenting. You're coming to Christ again. You come to church again on Sunday. You hear God's word. You have another week where you fumbled through life. And then you see the world portraying you like some kind of monster, like some kind of villain. And if you listen to the world you become discouraged by the weeds that are mixed in with the wheat. And you may start to believe the lie that the church of God is maybe not precious or beautiful or good. You may start to believe these distortions. If you listen enough to the world or if you focus on the birds or you focus on the yeast or you focus on the weeds. So Jesus tells these three stories back to back here. Right after, he's just told us how the church is going to be assaulted 
it's like he's coming in and telling us, you need to know how worth it it is. And so in the first parable, he speaks of the, the kingdom of heaven as being like a treasure that is worth selling all that he has so that he can gain it. In other words, the worth of the kingdom is worth everything. Such a small little parable. And yet the point he makes is so powerful, which is whatever it is that you stand to lose by being a Christian, he's saying it's worth it. It's worth all that you have. All that you have, whatever it is. He doesn't even say how much he has. He doesn't say if he has the equivalent of a billion dollars in ancient Jerusalem money, or if he has basically nothing and gave up nothing. All that he says is he gave up all that he has. Whatever the amount is, it's worth it, he's saying. And the second story, he talks about a a merchant who finds one great pearl. And what does he do? He sells everything that he has to buy it. In other words, in these stories, Jesus is highlighting the fact that in spite of the challenges, in spite of the discouragements, belonging to Christ is worth it. Right? It's, it's worth giving up everything. It's worth selling everything. It's worth being unpopular and not being celebrated by the world. Um, it's worth doing anything to have it. It's worth whatever you have to give up to have Jesus. Now, the third parable is the parable of the net, right? The parable, it's the nets it's thrown into the water, gathers fish of every kind, but there's a twist in the story. And in the twist, the net catches fish, but the fish are evil and good. Here we are. We're back to the same message before. We keep getting this issue that keeps coming up. The church is a mixed body, aren't we? Right, Jesus, it's almost like Jesus is saying, uh, almost protecting us from this triumphalist mindset that might come about if you have these two parables at the end and you say, well, it used to be this way. We, it used to be a mixed church, but, but now, maybe under Israel it was a mixed church, but not now. Now we're good, but then Jesus tells the parable again, just so you know, just so that you don't think, oh, I'm drawing this to an end. Uh, I won't belabor this any further, but just like the parable of the weeds, there's a sorting, and the sorting doesn't happen until the end of the age. The end of the age is when that happens. This is our life here and now, until the judgment. Until the judgment, there are bad fish in the net, there are birds in God's trees, there is leaven in God's flour, there are weeds in God's fields. People who look at the church as it exists right now are... They are correct to be disappointed by what they see. We are imperfect. There are imperfect people among us. There are even unbelievers among us who profess faith. Between now and the end of the age, there are birds in God's trees. There is leaven in God's flower. There are weeds in God's field. This situation, we saw it two weeks ago. It is Satan's doing. It is not God's doing, but it is God's design. We spoke already about the issue of hypocrisy and of there being people who belong to the visible church, they're not really born again. Scripture has hard words for who they are. Think of the terminology the Bible uses. The Bible says that they are chaff, uh, weeds among the wheat, bad fish in the net, those without a wedding garment, called but not chosen, bad branches on the vine, evildoers to be put away, Vessels for dishonor and those who ultimately went out from us. It uses all of those terms to speak of such people. And it's easy to let that define how we think of the church. But scripture, scripture says that's not really the church. 
It looks like the church from the outside. It's only the church that we can see, right? But, but looking at what the scripture calls the church, look at this. The church is called the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the building, the temple, the house of God built from the living stones of Christ, the cornerstone. The church is called the people, the possession, the Israel of God. The members of the church are called branches of the vine, the elect, the called, believers, beloved, brothers and sisters, children of God. Why am I telling you all of this? Because when you think of the church, you are not meant to focus on or dwell on the weeds. You are not meant to focus on the birds. You are not meant to focus on the leaven or the bad fish. Because the essence of the church is not those things. The essence of the church is Christ and his people. Herman Bovink makes this point. Listen to this. You've got to have a Bovink quote. He says, In its essence, the church is a gathering of true believers. Those who do not have an authentic faith may externally belong to the church. They do not make up its essential character. Though they are in the church, they are not the church. See, the, the core of what makes the church of God beautiful is Jesus and Jesus' work. It is not Satan and what he tries to do among us that defines the church. If you listen to what Jesus says when it comes to the church, we, we stop having the vision of the Lord crowded out by the world and we start listening to Jesus and what he says about us. I think sometimes we as Christians, we can feel a bit like the wife who doesn't feel beautiful. You know, and we need the spouse to look at us and say what he says about us. I love you. You are beautiful. You are precious to me. Or, to quote Song of Songs, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. We need him to say these things about us. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus looks at the church, and he sees the church's beauty, and he sees his own work among us, and Jesus is satisfied with what he sees. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Nothing in the world is dearer to God's heart than his church. Therefore, being his, let us also belong to it, that by our prayers, our gifts, and our labors, we may support and strengthen it. You know, Spurgeon's response to the knowledge of God's heart toward the church is to say, then let's be part of it, and let's work together so that the beauty of Christ can be seen. That's what Spurgeon's response is. Wow, God loves his church. You think the church isn't beautiful? You see work that needs to be done? then be part of it. Right? Jesus, Jesus says the church is worth it. He, don't criticize it. Don't tear it down. Don't hurt it. Helping the church to be a blessing. Right? Standing on the sidelines and criticizing and critiquing without putting your own skin in the game is not helping the church. Right? Writing angry, angry blogs about how the church needs to fix this and the church needs to fix that is not participating in or beautifying the church joining the church, improving the church, sharing your gifts. That is how it's done. Let me make a challenge to you. The work of beautifying the church doesn't belong to elders and pastors, right? We, we can seek to faithfully and consistently provide the appointed means of grace so that you can grow and so that you can glorify God. But ultimately, we cannot be the church for you. You as members must be the church, you must live out what God has been working in your heart. 
You, as God's people, are called to face outward into the world, sharing the hope that's within you. You are meant to live in such a way that the world cannot help but see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven, even though they thought they didn't like him. Will you become more Christ-conscious, more self-conscious about your role in helping Jesus and his church to be seen as beautiful? One of the ways you can be, be equipped to do that is to dwell on the good and precious things that God says about us as his church. You know, Scripture's full of these metaphors for the church. One of them is the idea of a bride, right? Paul tells husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He uses the word church here, right? He's saying, I love the church. I give myself for the church. That's how Jesus feels about the church. Um, In Ephesians 5, Paul says that the church is presented to Christ in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. In, In other words, the way Jesus presents us to the Father, there is nothing wrong with his people. You think of the church like that, or do you immediately argue back? <laughs> you hear that, and you think, ah, but, but, but. Well, God does. God, God thinks of the church as us being without spot or wrinkle or blemish or anything wrong. In Revelation 7, it talks about the bride, the church, and the bride is arrayed with these beautiful spotless garments washed in the cleansing blood of Jesus. He sees the church as beautiful as spotless, right? He, he brings no accusation because he loves her. Now, Revelation, I love Revelation because it also shows us that we're not above correction, right? Revelation 1 and 2 are all, and all of Israel's life was about correction. Revelation 1 and 2 is God correcting his people. Israel's existence was about being corrected, but ultimately he says, you are beautiful and spotless, In Revelation 19, when the multitude lay eyes on the church, what's their response when they see it? They say, the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready, right? They use that word ready to describe the church. Would you see the church as God sees her? Would you speak of her the way God speaks of her? When you see the church, would you see Jesus? Because that's what God does. Right? He sees the very righteousness of the Son of God. The church is as lovely as Jesus is. And here's the other reality. There's a glorious union between Jesus and his church. And it is a union that can't be broken and will never be broken. And the reason the church is beautiful is because Christ is beautiful. We are united to Christ and we have the beauty of Christ. We have his righteousness imputed to us. All of our sin is laid upon Jesus. The church is beautiful because we are united to the beautiful one. And he's chosen to make his church, to take his church and make us his own and to wash us and to care for us and to purchase us for his very own. We are precious because Jesus has decided that we are. Let's pray together. Father, you have blessed your church with a firm foundation that cannot be shaken or broken. And that's because you have built us upon the foundation that is Jesus himself, and he cannot be broken, and he cannot be shaken. Though the church has many enemies, you have promised that your word will prevail, 
We pray that you'd be at work in, in each of us, God, growing us, correcting us, maturing us, making us holy, beautifying yourself through your church. We ask it today in Jesus' name. Amen.